When I was young and single, I can remember being carried into a Halloween party at college. I was in a coffin and my friends were dressed as undertakers. In fact, my friend's father was an undertaker. He owned a funeral home in London and we had kind of uh, borrowed one of his coffins. It was very plush and must have been pretty expensive. Anyway, they sat this coffin down in the middle of the dance floor as the DJ was playing Thriller by Michael Jackson, which was my cue to kind of rise up out of the coffin with my face painted like I was uh, from the band Kiss. Well, when we woke up with hangovers the next morning, the coffin had disappeared. It was never seen again. And needless to say, our reckless behavior got us into a load of trouble. Uh, but all of that changed when I got married. When I was young and single, I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted, whether you know, getting into trouble at parties, nearly killing myself backpacking in Scotland, disappearing for a month in Morocco, or just sleeping in until midday on my days off and uh, watching spaghetti westerns while smoking a cigar. I enjoyed my liberty, but then I met Emma. I fell in love and I loved her more than myself and wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. But it meant things had to change. How I spent my time and my money now mattered to another person. I couldn't just think about myself anymore. And that was a hard transition for me because, well, I was basically selfish. You know, I'd just been used to pleasing myself. But you see, marriage is about putting the other person first, isn't it? It's about serving them to make them happy. It's about loving sacrifice. Sacrificing my own liberty, giving myself away in love for another. And that really is the true meaning of love. Now, please know that this is something I'm still working on in my own marriage, and it's still hard at times, right? There are many occasions when I've needed to humble myself and listen and apologize. I am still a work in progress. Uh, we both are. But I can tell you, it's my joy to give myself to Emma. We've been happily married now for 36 years, and we couldn't be happier. Uh, that's me saying that, I know. But anyway, why am I telling you this? Because it's the same kind of sacrificial love that's supposed to define true disciples of Jesus. It's what should define his church. But is that what the church is known for in America today? Would people say of the church today what they said of the early church when they said, wow, see how these Christians love one another? Is the church today as countercultural as the early church was? Because, you know, true Christian love that is sacrificial and committed to serving others would be radical in a society which is so focused on the self, whether that's self-expression, like be whoever you want, or self-preservation, you know, protecting my rights. But it's all about self, me, mine, mine, myself. And, and until the church is known once again for denying self and radically loving others, I would argue she has lost her way. And we're not truly abiding in Jesus in the way that he talks about in John 15. So with that in mind, let's look once again at John 15 and see what it means to abide in Jesus. We're going to read from verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So up until now, we've been looking at the metaphor of a vine that Jesus uses in John 15. But like every metaphor, it has its limitations. It helped us to see the vital relationship between the vine and its branches and how dependent we are upon Jesus for life and fruitfulness. It's the life of the vine in us that enables us to bear fruit. But what that doesn't convey is the relationship of love. It's not just life, it's love that connects Jesus and his disciples, or his friends as he calls them here. And this must be important because Jesus interrupts his vine metaphor to make sure his disciples are all clear about this. He's talked about abiding in the vine, in him, and now he says, abide in my love. To abide in Jesus is to abide in his love. So let's just take a moment here to unpack what he says. He starts by saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So the love that we're called to abide in and experience is the same love with which the Father has loved the Son, which is perfectly, completely and everlastingly. Later on in John 17, we find Jesus praying to the Father where he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before time began, there existed this relationship of love and it's a relationship that we are invited into because in John 17 26 Jesus then prayed for his followers and he prayed that the love with which you the father have loved me he says may be in them and when I hear that you know I think of those times in the gospels where we read of the father expressing his love for his son even before Jesus did anything, even before he began his ministry, a voice is heard from heaven at his baptism saying, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. And that is the love that Jesus has for us. That's the love that he wants each one of us to abide in and to experience for ourselves. And of course, when Jesus was saying, as the father loved me, so have I loved you, it was on the eve of him going to the cross where he was to demonstrate the absolute depth of his love for us by being willing to die in our place. A love so great that he was willing to sacrifice his own life for us. As it says in Romans 5, 8, you know, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God, but God's love was such it turned enemies into friends. Abide in my love, says Jesus, and in verse 11, he tells us why. He says that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. It's the joy of being wholly, completely, unconditionally loved. You know, our experience of joy in a fallen world will at best be shallow and incomplete until we are consumed by an experience of God's love, the love for which we were created. But our enjoyment of that love depends in part on our response to it. Because in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus's response to his father's love was total obedience. It was his joy to do his father's will, right? This was no dutiful obedience. It was the obedience of love. And that's why our own obedience in keeping Jesus's commands it's not a matter of just kind of right and wrong. It's not because we fear the consequences if we don't. It should be the natural outworking of love, 
right? When we experience his love for us, it should result in joyful obedience as an expression of our love for him. It's why Christianity can seem so unattractive when Christians appear joyless. Like, hey John, long time no see, why don't you come out with us Saturday night? You know, we're gonna party, we'll get stoned. Um, well, thanks for the invite, but I really can't. Oh, well, why not? Well, um, I've become a Christian and uh, I really can't be doing those things anymore. I mean, I'm sure you guys will have a blast. You know, you go ahead, but I have to be at a prayer meeting. Oh, poor you. Hardly sounds like the fullness of joy, does it? Doesn't sound like we found something better than life, as David put it in Psalm 63, when he says, your love is better than life. If we are truly abiding in his love and experiencing his love, then it will be our joy to keep his commandments and live lives that are pleasing and devoted to him. Keeping his commandments and abiding in his love go hand in hand. Can you see? But what are his commandments? How can they be summarized? Well, Jesus goes on to say in uh, verse 12 of chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this is important because he's repeating something he's already told them a little earlier in John 13, where he says this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so if we are truly abiding in his love, then it will be evident to all because of our joyful obedience to his commands. And the acid test of that obedience will be seen by how we love one another, which should be as Jesus loved us. In other words, sacrificially, as he goes on to make clear in the next verse of John 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You know, I hear a lot these days about uh, standing up for our rights and liberties. And I understand that. But are we also willing to lay down our lives in costly, sacrificial, self-denying love for others? Because if that love is not evident, then how can we be followers of Jesus? Because clearly, we're not abiding in him. Now, of course, loving others doesn't mean we have to compromise our convictions. You know, some of you may have heard people quoting Rick Warren recently. Rick Warren said this, he said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Not only that, but even if people fear and hate us, we are still called to sacrificially love them anyway. Right? We can't just kind of narrow this down to loving our friends. I know that was the context in John 15. Jesus was talking to his friends. And of course, our love for others has to start there with friends or fellow believers. They can't remain there because as we know, Jesus also calls us to love our enemies. It was while we were still enemies of God that Christ died for us. And in so doing, he turned enemies into friends. 
And so we are to love others in the way that he has loved us. That's what he's saying here. Now, how many messages have you heard on loving one another? I mean, this is just so familiar, isn't it? This is kind of Christianity 101. But then, as I said at the beginning, how many people are there out there commenting about how radical the church's love is? And why is that? I think we would all agree that this is what we should be doing. And I'm sure we're all seeking to put this into practice to some degree. You know, I thank God wherever I see it happening in our congregations and small groups. And when I hear stories of people uh, serving one another in love. And yet, as I read John 15, I'm left with this kind of nagging feeling that maybe more is required. Or perhaps I should say that more is required of me. I have to ask myself, am I truly loving others the way that Jesus has loved me? In other words, unconditionally, sacrificially. Jesus didn't love me because I was lovable or deserving or good enough. He didn't love me because I first loved him. He didn't love me because I added anything to his existence and yet he laid down his life for me. What does that look like for me to love others in the same way? What does it look like for you? You know, your spouse, your family, uh, the people in your community group or congregation. What about loving people you might fundamentally disagree with? Right? What would it look like to love a gay couple as deeply as Jesus loves you? Or a Muslim who's worshipping at the nearby mosque? What about the person on the far left or far right? Because that's what this love looks like. But it's hard, isn't it? Because it goes against the grain of our natural self. It goes against the grain of our culture. You know, like marriage, the transition from self-preservation, serving my own interests to serving another can be hard. Unless, of course, there's something in it for me. I mean, lots of people do good to others to make themselves feel better or for the praise that they get. You know, it satisfies a need within them. But to selflessly, sacrificially love others the way Jesus loved us is hard, isn't it? I mean, just for example, it means making ourselves vulnerable. As C.S. Lewis said, to love at all is to be vulnerable because you open yourself up to being hurt. I think of Jeff and Sheena Cole as foster parents. You know, foster families make themselves vulnerable when they commit to love a child who might only be in their care for a short period of time. That kind of love costs something, but they do it for the sake of the child. Not only does it mean making ourselves vulnerable, it also means being inconvenienced. Loving others is inconvenient at times, because it might mean stopping what you're doing or changing your schedule to go out of your way to serve someone else, like the Good Samaritan did. You know, I don't know where he was going when he saw the Jewish man there uh, lying in the road in need, but it must have been inconvenient to stop. Right? Two other men had already passed by. They had things to do. They had places to go. And this was a fellow Jew lying in the road. It was a foreigner who put himself out, got his hands dirty, even cost him financially to put the man up in an inn until he had recovered. But you see, that's what love looks like. It might mean financially supporting someone for a while until they can support themselves. And to do that might cost us some of our own material comforts. Because this love is sacrificial. It's self-giving. It costs. 
Love might mean taking the time to have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone rather than just shooting them a text or telling them what you think on Facebook. It might mean actually switching off my phone so I can give someone my undivided attention, so I can listen to them. That seems to be a rare thing these days, doesn't it? Actually listening to people. I mean, really listening, not looking over their shoulder or you know, checking my phone while we're talking or interrupting them, but actually listening. It demonstrates love for that person, shows you value them, you care for them. Right? It's something I'm actually trying to get better at myself. Philippians chapter 2 says that love puts the interests of others before our own. So surely that must mean taking the time to listen to other people's interests and seeking to understand their point of view. You know, if more people did that, then our society wouldn't be disintegrating into the tribalism that we're seeing today. It's something that the church should be leading the way in, demonstrating how people with differing political views can still love one another and show respect to one another and maintain unity. But you see, that takes humility. And again, isn't that how Jesus loved us? Because he humbled himself to come and serve us. Love is humble. It's also patient, kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's why it's more important to love than to be right. What I mean by that is I don't have to win the argument or correct the person or defend a position if it means uh, risking damaging the relationship. Love is more important. You might win the argument, but you won't win the person. And so love in that situation might mean investing relational time to listen to the other person, to try and understand their perspective, to show that we care about them. And then maybe, just maybe, they want to hear what we have to say. But it's hard, isn't it? To love others the way that Jesus loved us is hard. It makes us vulnerable, it's inconvenient, and it's costly. Is that why we don't hear too many people in our own society saying, wow, look at these Christians, how they love each other. So what's the answer? Try harder, do better. I think what Jesus is telling us in John 15 is we need to go deeper. We need to go deeper in his love. Remember Jesus said, abide in my love. That's where this all starts. If we're truly abiding in his love, I mean really experiencing his love, then it will be our joy to love others in the way he commanded. But it comes from abiding in his love, going deeper in our experience of his love. And that is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how can we go deeper and experience the depths of God's love through the power of the Spirit? Well, as Jesus says in John 15, we ask the Father. Is that it? Yes. Ask whatever you want, he said, and it will be done for you. It's as simple as asking. It seems the Apostle Paul understood that as well. He was in prison when he prayed for the church in Ephesus that they might abide in Christ's love and that they would experience his love more deeply and more profoundly. And there can be no doubt he fully expected his prayer to be answered. He didn't have to be there in person to lay hands on people to receive this love. He had confidence as he asked his heavenly Father that it would be the Father's good pleasure to answer that prayer. So with that in mind, I'm going to close now 
by praying the same prayer for our church, for all of us. And I encourage you to pray it for yourselves, that we might all abide in Christ's love more deeply. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, that he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our innermost being, so that Christ may dwell, that he might abide in our hearts through faith, that you and I, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of that love, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may all be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, including this generation, forever and ever. Amen.